that that pain goes back to that original disconnection. And so my other teacher, uh, A.H. Almas, says, speaking about childhood, the fundamental thing that happened and the greatest calamity is not that there was no lover's support. The greater calamity, which is caused by that first calamity, is that you lost the connection to your essence. That is much more important than whether your mother or father, father loved you or not. And by extension, I'm going to make the perhaps astonishing statement that, that, that the fundamental problem was not that you were sexually abused, was not that you were beaten, was not that you were abandoned, not that your parents couldn't love you the way you needed to be loved. It's that as a result of all that, you lost the connection to yourself. That's the trauma. So there's the external event, then the impact. And although it's impossible to have it happen this way, but had you been beaten and abused, but had that not resulted in the, in the disconnect from yourself, you would not have been traumatized. And so that what are we looking for then is that reconnection with ourselves. And um, the loss of connection itself is an adaptation. Why is that an adaptation? Because if it's so painful to be myself, I better disconnect. If it's so painful for me to be aware of my gut feelings and to be able to assert them and to manifest them and to declare them, I better disconnect from my gut feelings. And it's that connection from the gut feeling which happens right in the body. That's the trauma. And then we spend the rest of our lives trying to compensate. How do we compensate? Well, through addiction. Or we compensate by developing certain personality patterns that then will uh, somehow try to get us indirectly what we didn't get in the first place, which is the love that would have allowed us to connect to ourselves. So then we become our personalities. At least we, 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 become, we, we become who we think we are as a personality. So if you didn't get the attention that you needed as a child, just for yourself, then you might become consumed by attracting attention. Then you'll be attractive all the time. And hence the $30 billion cosmetic surgery industry. Because people have lost the connection to themselves. And now they want validation from the outside or you didn't get the approval you needed for who you were now you want to win approval from others as a substitute you weren't valued for who you were now you're consumed by measuring up to others expectations so that you can get your sense of value to what others think of you to what other people think of you you weren't esteemed for who you are now you're going to be wanting to impress people all the time because we couldn't be ourselves because being ourselves would have meant too much pain, too much um, suffering, too much vulnerability. Vulnerability, the Latin word vulnerare, to wound. Our wound would be too raw. We cover up our vulnerability by these compensatory mechanisms and we close our hearts. And when we close our hearts, we no longer know how to love ourselves or others. And we no longer have pleasure or joy. And then you have the statement by Meister Eckhart, who's the 13th century spiritual master who says a human being has so many skins inside covering the depths of the heart we know so many things but we don't know ourselves again that loss of self why 
Thirty or forty skins or hides, as thick and as hard as an ox's or a bear's, cover the soul. And he says, go into your ground and learn to know yourself there. Well, why to develop these skins, these hides? These are the compensations. These are how we try and protect ourselves from that woundedness. So I want to say, first of all, that for trauma, you don't need terribly traumatic events. So there's two ways to look at trauma. One is that bad things happen that shouldn't have. We've, we've talked about those. But the other way to get traumatized is when good things happen that should have happened. So if uh, the good, good things didn't happen that should have happened, sorry. So when you look, look at the that... trauma of omission. Trauma of omission with the parents, not that they didn't love you, not that they didn't do their best, but they were too stressed, traumatized, distracted themselves. Then you get, didn't get the kind of attention and the kind of acceptance and the kind of attuned being with that you needed. That itself can make you disconnect from yourself. The child needs that acceptance, that connection, that attunement. Our brain development requires it, our emotional development demands it. And when we don't get it, not because the parents don't love us, but simply because of their own issues, we can also suffer that disconnection. So that's what I call developmental trauma. This, now this leads to the, uh, the question of trauma, because <clears throat> it's one thing to recognize that all this originates in childhood pain. It's quite another to transform that pain. And for that, we have to understand what trauma is. So people often think that trauma is what happens to you. So trauma is a divorce when you were small and your parents fighting. Trauma is your mother's depression. Trauma is your father's alcoholism. Trauma is your parents' argumentation. Trauma is physical or sexual abuse or some loss. Those aren't the traumas. Those are traumatic. But the trauma is not what happens to you. The trauma is what happens inside you. And as a result of these traumatic events, what happens inside you is you get, you get disconnected from your emotions and you disconnected from your body and you have difficulty being in the present moment and you develop a negative view of your world and a negative view of yourself and a defensive view of other people. And these perspectives keep showing up in your life in the present. And so the issue is not just to recognize what happened 10, 15, 30, however many years ago, but to actually recognize the manifestations in the present moment and to transcend them. And how do you do that? By reconnecting with yourself, by restoring the connection with your body primarily and with your emotions that you lost. <clears throat> and once you do, when you found these things again, then you have what we call recovery. Because what does it mean to recover something? It means to find it again. So what is it that people find when they recover? They find themselves. And the loss of self is the essence of trauma. So the real purpose of, uh, of, of addiction treatment, mental health treatment, any kind of healing is reconnection. I've come to talk to you about addiction, the power of addiction, but also addiction to power. As a medical doctor, I work in Vancouver, Canada, and I've worked with some very, very addicted people. People who use heroin, they inject uh, cocaine, uh, they drink alcohol, uh, crystal meth, and every drug known to man. And these people suffer. If the success of a doctor is to be measured by how long his patients live, then I'm a failure, because my patients die very young. 
relatively speaking. They, they die of HIV, they die of hepatitis C, they die of infections of their heart valves, they die of infections of their brains, of their spine, of their hearts, of their bloodstream. They die of suicide, of overdose, of violence, of accidental deaths. And if you look at them, you, you call to mind the words of the great Egyptian novelist Naguib Mahfouz, who wrote, nothing records the effects of a sad life as graphically as the human body, because these people lose everything. They lose their health, they lose their beauty, they lose their teeth, they lose their wealth, they lose human relationship, and in the end, they often lose their lives. And yet nothing shakes them from their addiction. Nothing can force them to give up their addiction. The addictions are powerful. And the question is why? And as one of my patients said to me, I'm not afraid of dying, he said, I'm more afraid of living. And the question we have to ask is, why are people afraid of life? And if you want to understand addiction, you can't look at what's wrong with the addiction, you have to look at what's right about it. In other words, what is the person getting from the addiction? What are they getting that otherwise they don't have? And what addicts get are relief from, us, from pain. What they get is a sense of peace, a sense of control, um, a sense of calmness, very, very temporarily. And the question is, why are these qualities missing from their lives? What happened to them? Now, if you look at the drugs like heroin, like morphine, like codeine, um, if you look at uh, cocaine, if you look at alcohol, these are all painkillers. One way or another, they all soothe pain. And that's where the real question in addiction is not why the addiction, but why the pain. Now, I just finished reading the biography of Keith Richards, the guitarist for the Rolling Stones. And as you probably know, everybody's still surprised that Richards is still alive today because he was a heavy-duty heroin addict for a long time. And in his biography, he writes that the addiction was all about looking for oblivion, looking for forgetting. He said, the contortions that we go through just not to be ourselves for a few hours. And I understand that very well myself, because I know that discomfort with myself. I know that uh, discomfort being in my own skin. I know that desire to escape from my own mind. The uh, great British psychiatrist uh, R.D. Uh, Lang said that there are three things that people are afraid of. They're afraid of death, of other people, and their own minds. And for a long time in my life, I wanted to distract myself from my own mind, because I was afraid to be alone with it. And how would I distract myself? Well, I I've never used drugs, but I distracted myself through work and throwing myself into uh, activity. And I've distracted myself through shopping. Uh, in my case, for classical compact music, classical compact discs. But I've been a real addict that way. One week I spent $8,000 on the classical compact discs, not because I wanted to, but because I couldn't help going back to the store. And as a medical doctor, I used to deliver a lot of babies. And once I left a woman in labor in hospital to get a, to get a, a classical uh, piece of music, and I still could have made it back to the, store, uh, to the hospital on time, but once you're in the store, you can't leave because there's these evil classical music dealers in the aisles, you know, who... Hey, buddy, have you listened to the latest Mozart symphony uh, cycle? You haven't? Well, so I missed the delivery of that baby. 
And I'd come home and I'd lie to my wife about it, like any addict, I would lie about it. And I would ignore my own children because of my obsession with work and with music. So I know what that escape uh, from the self is like. And my definition of addiction is any behavior that gives you temporary relief, temporary pleasure, but in the long term causes harm, has some negative consequences, and you can't give it up despite those negative consequences. And, and from that perspective, you can understand that uh, there's many, many addictions. Yes, there's the addiction to drugs, but there's also the addiction to consumerism, uh, there's the addiction to uh, sex, to the internet, uh, to uh, shopping, to food. The Buddhists have this idea of the hungry ghosts. The hungry ghosts are creatures with large empty bellies and small scrawny necks and tiny little mouths, so they can never get enough. They can never feel this emptiness on the inside. And we all hungry ghosts in this society. We all have this emptiness. And so many of us are trying to uh, fill that emptiness from the outside. And the addiction is all about trying to fill that emptiness from the outside. Now, if you want to ask the question of why people are in pain, you can't look at their genetics. You have to look at their lives. And in the case of my patients, my highly addicted patients, it's very clear why they're in pain. Because they've been abused all their lives. They began life as abused children. All the women I worked with over a 12-year period, hundreds of them, they had all been sexually abused as children. And the men had been traumatized as well. The men had been sexually abused, neglected, physically abused, abandoned, and emotionally hurt over and over again. And that's why the pain. And there's something else here too. The human brain, the human brain itself, as you heard already, develops an interaction with the environment. It's not just genetically programmed. So the kind of environment that a child has will actually shape the development of the brain. Now, I can tell you about two experiences with mice. You take a little mouse and you put food in his mouth and he'll eat it and enjoy it and swallow it. But if you put the food down a few inches away from his nose, he will not move to eat it he will actually starve to death rather than eat. Why? Because genetically, they knocked out the receptors for a chemical in the brain called dopamine. Dopamine is the incentive motivation chemical. Dopamine flows whenever we're motivated, excited, vital, vibrant, curious about something, when we're seeking food or a sexual partner. Without the dopamine, we have no motivation. Now, what do you think the addict gets? When the addict shoots cocaine, the addict shoots crystal meth, or almost any drug, they get a hit of dopamine in their brain. And the question is, what happened to their brains in the first place? Because it's a myth that drugs are addictive. Drugs are not by themselves addictive, because most people who try most drugs never become addicted. So the question is, why are some people vulnerable to be addicted? Just like food is not addictive, but to some people it is. Shopping is not addictive, but to some people it is. Television is not addictive, but to some people it is. So the question is, why the susceptibility? There's another little experiment with mice where infant mice, if they're separated from the mothers, will not cry for their mothers. Now, what would that mean in the wild? It means that they would die 
because only the mother protects the child's life and nurtures the child. And why? Because genetically, they knocked out the receptors, the chemical binding sites in the brain, for endorphins. And endorphins are our indigenous morphine-like substances. Endorphins are our own natural painkillers. And what morphine or what endorphins also do, they make possible the experience of love. They make possible the experience of attachment to the parent and the parent's attachment to the child. So these little mice without endorphin receptors in their brains will actually not call for their mothers. In other words, the addiction to these drugs and of course, the heroin and the morphine, what they do is they act on the endorphin system. That's why they work. And so the question is, what happens to people that they need these chemicals from the outside? Well, what happens to them is when they're abused as children, those circuits don't develop. When you don't have love and connection in your life, uh, when you're very, very young, then those important brain circuits just don't develop properly. And under conditions of abuse, things just don't develop properly, and their brains then are, are susceptible when they do the drugs. Now they feel normal, now they feel pain relief, now they feel love. And as one patient said to me that when I first did heroin, she said, it felt like a warm, soft hug, just like a mother hugging a baby. Now, I've had that same emptiness, not to the same degree as my patients. What happened to me? What happened to me is that I was born in Budapest, Hungary in 1944 to Jewish parents, just before the Germans occupied Hungary. And you know what happened to the Jewish people in Eastern Europe. And I was two months old when the German army moved into Budapest, the Wehrmacht, and the day after they did, my mother phoned the pediatrician and, and she said, would you please come and see Gabor, because he's crying all the time. And the pediatrician said, of course I will come to see him, but I should tell you, all my Jewish babies are crying. Now, why? What do babies know about Hitler or genocide or, or war? Nothing. What we're picking up on is the stresses and the terrors and the depression of our mothers. And that actually shapes the child's brain. That actually shapes the child's brain. And, uh, of course, uh, what happens then is I get the message that the world doesn't want me. Because if my mother's not happy around me, she must not want me. Why do I become a workaholic later? Because if they don't want me, at least they're going to need me. Now I'll be an important doctor, and they're going to need me. And that way I can make up for the feeling of not being wanted in the first place. And what does that mean? It means that I'm working all the time, and when I'm not working, I'm consumed by buying music. What message do my kids get? My kids get the same message that they're not wanted. And this is how we pass it on. We pass on the trauma and we pass on the suffering unconsciously from one generation to the next. So obviously, there are many, many ways to fill this emptiness. And for each person, there's a different way of filling the emptiness. But the emptiness always goes back to what we didn't get when we were very small but we didn't get when we were very small. And then we look at the drug addict, and we say to the drug addict, how can you possibly do this to yourself? How can you possibly inject this terrible substance into your body that may kill you? But look at what we're doing to the earth. We're injecting all kinds of things into the atmosphere and the, and the oceans and the environment that is killing us, that's killing the earth. 
Now, which addiction is greater? The addiction to oil or to consumerism? Which causes the greater harm? And yet, we judge the drug addict because we actually see that they're just like us, and we don't like that. So we say, you're different from us. You're worse than we are. On the plane to uh, Sao Paulo and Rio de Janeiro, I was reading the New York Times on June the 9th, and there was an article about Brazil. And the article was about a man called Nigio Gomes, uh, a leader of the Guarani people in the Amazon, who was killed last November. And you probably heard about him. And he was killed because he was protecting his people from the big farmers and companies that are taking over the rainforest and destroying the rainforest and they're destroying the habitat of the native Indian people here in Brazil. And I can tell you that coming from Canada, the same thing has happened over there. And many of my patients were actually First Nations Indian people, native Indian people in Canada. And they are heavily addicted. They make, a, a, they make up a small percentage of the population, but they make up a large percentage of the people in jail, the people who are addicted, the people who are mentally ill, the people who commit suicide. Why? Because the lands were taken away from them and because they were killed and abused for generations, generations and generations. But the question I ask is, if you can understand the suffering of these native people and how that suffering makes them seek relief from pain in their addictions, what about the people who are perpetrating it? What are they addicted to? Well, they're addicted to power. They're addicted to wealth. They're addicted to acquisition. They want to make themselves bigger. And when I was trying to understand the addiction to power, I looked at some of the most powerful people in history. I looked at Alexander the Great. I looked at Napoleon. I looked at Hitler. I looked at Genghis Khan. I looked at Stalin. It's very interesting when you look at these people. First of all, why did they need power so much? Interestingly enough, physically, they were all very small people. My size. <laughs> Or smaller, actually smaller. They um, came from outsiders. They were not part of the major population. Stalin was a Georgian, not a Russian. Napoleon was a Corsican, not a Frenchman. Alexander was a Macedonian, not a Greek. And Hitler was an Austrian, not a, not a German. So a real sense of insecurity and inferiority. And they needed power to feel okay in themselves, to make themselves bigger. And in order to get that power, they're quite willing to fight wars and to kill a lot of people, uh, just to maintain that power. I'm not saying that only small people can be power-hungry, but it's interesting to look at these examples, because power, the addiction to power, is always about the emptiness that you try and fill from the outside. And Napoleon, even in exile, on, on the island of St. Helena, after he lost power, he said, I love power. I love power. He, he couldn't think of himself without power. He had no sense of himself without being powerful externally. And that's very interesting when you compare it to uh, people like the Buddha or Jesus. Because if you look at the story about Jesus and Buddha, both of them were tempted by the devil. And one of the things that the devil offers them is power, earthly power. And they both say no. Now, why do they say no? They say no because they have the power inside of themselves. They don't need it from the outside. 
And they both say no because they don't want to control people, they want to teach people. They want to teach people by example and by soft words and by wisdom, not through force. So they refuse power. And it's very interesting what they say about that. Jesus says that the power and the reality is not outside of yourself, but inside. He says the kingdom of God is within. And the Buddha, before he dies and his monks are mourning and crying and they're all upset, he says, don't mourn me, he says, and don't worship me. Find a lamp inside yourself. Be a lamp unto yourselves. Find the light within. And so as we look at this difficult world with the loss of the environment and the global warming and the depredations in the oceans, let's not look to the people in power to change things. Because the people in power, I'm afraid to say, are very often some of the emptiest people in the world. And they're not going to change things for us. We have to find that light within ourselves. We have to find the light within communities and with our, in our own wisdom and our own creativity. We can't wait for the people in power to make things better for us because they're never going to, not unless we make them. Now, they say that human nature is competitive, that human nature is aggressive, that human nature is selfish. It's just the opposite. Human nature is actually cooperative. Human nature is actually generous. Human nature is actually community-minded. What we see here at this conference with people sharing information, people receiving information, people committed to the better world, that's actually human nature. And what I'm saying to you is, if we find that light within, if we find our own nature, then we'll be kinder to ourselves and we'll also be kinder to nature. Thank you. If you look at the story about Jesus and Buddha, both of them were tempted by the devil. And one of the things that the devil offers them is power, earthly power. And they both say no. Now why do they say no? They say no because they have the power inside of themselves. They don't need it from the outside. And they both say no because they don't want to control people, they want to teach people. They want to teach people by example and by soft words and by wisdom, not through force. So they refuse power. And it's very interesting what they say about that. Jesus says that the power and the reality is not outside of yourself, but inside. He says the kingdom of God is within. And the Buddha, before he dies and his monks are mourning and crying and they're all upset, he says, don't mourn me, he says, and don't worship me. Find the lamp inside yourself. Be a lamp unto yourselves find the light within. What we see here at this conference with people sharing information, people receiving information, people committed to the better world, that's actually human nature. And what I'm saying to you is, if we find that light within, if we find our own nature, then we'll be kinder to ourselves and we'll also be kinder to nature. In this video, I'm going to show you Dr. Gabor Mate's 10 top tips. Dr. Gabor Mate is a renowned speaker and best-selling author. Dr. Mate is a physician who specializes in addiction, neurology, psychiatry, and psychology. Dr. Mate's work has taken a unique view on addiction therapy. Dr. Mate answered some deeper questions about addiction, 
and trauma that is very insightful and full of wisdom. Gaber Mate was born in Budapest, Hungary in 1944. Gaber is a survivor of the Nazi genocide. Mate emigrated to Canada with his family in 1957. After graduating with a BA from the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Gaber worked in a high school as an English and literature teacher. Mate left this role as an English teacher because he felt it was not a good fit for him and he found it was quite stressful. Mate returned to school to pursue his childhood dream as a physician. Mate ran a private family practice in East Vancouver for over 20 years. He was also the medical coordinator of a palliative care unit at Vancouver Hospital for seven years. He also worked in Vancouver's downtown east side with patients challenged by drug addiction and mental illness. Dr. Maddy defines addiction as the behaviour or substance that a person uses or takes part in that has negative consequences. According to Dr. Maddy, all addictions come from emotional loss and the exit to soothe the pain resulting in that loss. In the realms of the hungry ghost, one of his best-selling books, he draws on the cutting-edge science and real-life stories that all addictions originate from trauma and emotional loss. Dr. Mate calls for a compassionate approach towards addiction, whether it's in ourselves or in others. Mate believes that the source of addiction is not found in the genes, but in our early childhood environment. According to Mate, the human infant and the toddler is a highly vulnerable creature, and emotional stresses of all kinds in the rearing environment can create long-lasting wounds in the psyche that a person will later try to soothe or known with addictive behaviour. In 2010, Dr. Maddy became interested in the traditional Amazon plant, ayahuasca, and its potential for treating addictions. He partnered with the traditional shamanic healers and became leading multi-day retreats for addiction treatment. From an article from The Globe and Mail, According to Dr. Gabor Mate, ayahuasca is not a drug in the Western sense. Something you can take and get rid of something. Properly used, it opens up parts of yourself that usually you have no access to. Parts of the brain that hold emotional memories come together with those parts that modulate insight and awareness. So you see past experiences in a new way. The natural human response to pain is to escape, he added. That's the essence of addiction. Ayahuasca allows users to hold the pain and not run from it. Dr. Gabor Mate is international recognized as a leading authority on a range of topics including addiction, trauma, childhood development and the relationship with stress and illness. Dr. Gabor Mate is a modern-day healer philosopher whose teachings could significantly change the world. Make sure to click the subscribe button, like, share, comment so that you can get more videos like this in the future. Thank you for watching. Here's my take on Dr. Gabor Mate's Top 10 tips. If you come to me as an addict and you say, I got such and such, and I ask you, what does it do for you? And you say it numbs the pain. Then my question is, where did you develop the pain? What happened? And then we have an inquiry. And now it no longer becomes a shameful thing that you chose this, nor does it mean that you're stuck with it because you got this genetic problem. We get it as an adaptive response to something that happened, and we can heal that. The reason why addiction treatment is failing is because physicians don't understand this. They keep dealing with the effects, which is the addiction, and the behaviors, which are the effects of the addiction, but not the cause, which is the childhood distress. One way to be compassionate with yourself is to say no when you want to say no. Or put it another way, sometimes you might have to say yes, even when you don't want to, only because of the circumstances. I mean, if a friend of yours gets into a car accident at 3 in the morning, you don't feel like getting out of bed, but you're going to. That's all right. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the compulsive suppression of the no.
when, it's, when it comes out of compulsion, an inner drive, then you don't have compassion for yourself. So why is the gut so much more intelligent than your thoughts? In other words, when you went with your thoughts, you were wrong. If you paid attention to your gut feelings, you were right. The gut receives messages from the whole brain. And it magnifies them and sends them back up. So that when you are listening to gut feelings, you're getting the whole picture. Your intellect, your thoughts are only a very small part of your, uh, of your um, evaluative apparatus. And emotions came much before we had thoughts. It's just not allowing that conditioned mind to control who you are. And of course, all addiction is all about the conditioned mind controlling you. There are four qualities that I can see that are needed for this kind of work, to, to get behind the conditioned mind that drives addiction, is compassion for the self, number one. And compassion is so lacking in this society, and particularly compassion for the self is so lacking in this society. Um, the epidemic of uh, cosmetic surgery. It's a massive epidemic of lack of self-compassion. People just cannot accept themselves the way they are. And of course, society says, and you shouldn't accept yourself the way you are, because you're not good enough. And whenever we're judgmental of other people, and especially when we have strong feelings around those judgments, you can be sure that it's all about ourselves, that we're projecting our own self-dislike onto somebody else, and therefore we don't have to deal with it. We're just trying to shove those people aside so we don't have to look at ourselves. This is why, by the way, all the great spiritual teachers uh, tell you not to judge, or at least to exam examine your own judgments. You know, Jesus says at some point that in, in the Gospel of Matthew that uh, any judgment you make of other people is fundamentally about yourself. Then you're casting on the outside. And you don't have to work so hard to be liked and loved. You're okay. Uh, just relax, kid, you know. And, and allow life to come to you. You don't have to force it. Um, and uh, open your heart. Don't, don't just focus on your clever brain so much. Any problem comes along, not in order to make our lives miserable, but actually in, make, in order to make our life less miserable. And the suffering that it imposes is an attempt to wake us up. And if we wake up, we'll have a reason to be grateful. Again, I'm not saying that I recommend either cancer or addictions as a way of learning. But what I am recommending is that if they do come along, or if anything comes along, we take it as an opportunity to learn. We take it as a God-given gift that is here to um, wake us up. The fundamental thing that happened, and the greatest calamity, is not that there was no love or support. The greater calamity, which was caused by that first calamity, is that you lost the connection to your essence. That is much more important than whether, you are, whether, your, mother, whether your mother or father loved you or not. So the big thing then is not to focus on what happened externally and how do I get that from the outside, but how do I reconnect to myself? My understanding of how the self develops in infancy is in relationship with the mother. And so if there's never a self that develops, how do you return to the self? Okay, let me ask you a question. Have you ever had the experience? No, stay with the mic. Um, 
Have you ever had an experience where you realized that you'd done something or said something, and then it was a kind of a twinge of shame afterwards because you thought, I wasn't myself there? Have you ever had that experience? I think it was connected to myself, and then I felt shame. Or I believed it was connected to myself, and then I felt shame. Yeah. Well, there's no sense of shame in connecting with the self. Mm. Okay. Have you had the experience? Is anything in that, in that tells you when you're not being yourself? It's hard to answer. Well, then you need help. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, uh, and I can't give you an intellectual answer to that because I don't want to speak to your mind. Your, well, mind yeah. has your mind has already had a lot of training. I think the self is over, ever evolving. Okay, I'm not going to do an intellectual discussion. <laughs> I'm telling you that the self is right here in the gut. Mm. No. Have you had the experience of having a strong gut feeling, ignoring it, and being sorry afterwards? Absolutely. Okay, that's when you were not being yourself. Okay, Thank you. but the gut was there to tell you. You got to just pay attention to that. And if you don't know how to do that, you need to get help how to do that. And then you know what the self is. It's not yes. an intellectual concept. Fair enough? Uh, got it. Thank you. Thank you.